Ezekiel. We'll start out by considering who Ezekiel is and uh, sort of a summary view of the whole prophecy of uh, Ezekiel. Tomorrow we'll get into the part that is applicable to us um, and uh, to, to folks who, who will be alive in what Ezekiel calls the absolute last days. We'll see that that phrase uh, tomorrow when we get into chapters 38 and 39. So I have it all here. Uh, I can just, uh, whatever is up there is going to be in your booklet. Uh, Ezekiel was a very young priest when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came against uh, Jerusalem. He received his call, it's all in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, while he was in Babylon as an exile. Ezekiel, God strengthens or strengthened by God. His name actually only appears twice uh, in, in his prophecy. His hometown is unknown. Interestingly enough, no other biblical writer refers to him. So what is known about Ezekiel is derived entirely from the book itself, his book, his prophecy. 30 years old when he started ministry and he was married. All of that's in the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel contains many dates so we can prophesy what he says uh, with, with, with considerable accuracy. Twelve of the 13 dates in the book of Ezekiel specify the times when Ezekiel received his message from the Lord. Uh, so he receives his call as a prophet in July of 593 B.C. And he was active in his ministry for 22 years. His last dated oracle was received in about 571. So his whole ministry transpired during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar which was during the years 605 to 562 B.C. A young man, uh, some would refer to him as either a fresh seminary graduate or a seminary student. He was there studying, his, studying the priesthood uh, where the temple was in Jerusalem. He was, being a young, being a young man, he was among uh, the first of the deportations here, the second, deportation that would have been in 597 BC uh, also at that time Je uh, King Jehoiakim and his whole household his officials and many of the leaders of Judah were also uh, deported you see that in 2 Kings 24 so Ezekiel ministered in the midst of the Jewish exiles who had settled at Tel Abib beside the Kabar River, and the site of where most of the Jewish exile exiles lived in Babylon was at this site. As a matter of fact, and this is an, an interesting thing to note, life became so easy in Babylon for the exiles that after Cyrus, much later, uh, allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, that would have been in 538 B.C., that also was well dated in the Bible, uh, most of them decided they wanted to stay where they were. 
because they had become uh, prosperous and they had become accustomed to life in Babylon. Now, let me explain that. You know uh, that uh, the nation of Israel was split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, and that's where 10 of the 12 tribes went to live. And then there was the southern kingdom where Judah and Benjamin stayed, generally speaking. Of course, Judah, Judah was, so, was, was such a large tribe that uh, the total of the other tribes put together was about as many people as there were in the tribe of Judah. Now, in uh, the northern kingdom, they, they, they didn't have the city of Jerusalem. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the priesthood. They did not have the high priest, and they didn't have the son of David sitting on the throne as king. So they went much more quickly down the path of sin and destruction. And you can read about that, the last days of it, in Hosea and in Amos. They were the prophets that God raised up for the northern kingdom uh, in the last of the times of, of the northern kingdom. Now, Assyria is the great world power that came against Israel, the northern kingdom, and defeated them. The, the policy of Assyria on how to deal with defeated nations was totally different from the way Babylon dealt with those who had been defeated. Assyria had the policy of seeking to destroy the culture, the education, the language, and the ethnicity of the people they defeated. And so they forced these people to, to intermarry. They forced them to live together and then, of course, the younger ones were conscripted. Whoops, were conscripted into the. Uh, I got to go back now. And uh, where was I? They were cons conscripted in uh, into the army to serve. Uh, is this is this the one I was in? Okay, yeah. All right. Now, what I'm giving you right now is, is not in your notes, but, but you need to understand when we read about how they became comfortable, you don't read that about the 10 northern tribes when, they were, when, when the northern kingdom was defeated. So the 10 northern tribes through history have been referred to as the 10 lost tribes. Of course, God knows where they are because the book of the Revelation shows them regathering at the last time and then, of course, in the millennial reign of Christ as well. But Assyria was very heartless and ruthless in the way they treated people. On the other hand, Nebuchadnezzar's policy was that he would have less trouble with exiles if he gave them work that was sort of indigenous. It was sort of like what they did when they were in their home nation. If he gave them similar work and let them speak their own language and let them continue their own culture and their own religion and put them together as a group. That's why, for example, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were very young, young teenagers, I guess. And it was, it was young people like that whom the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had chosen 
to come and be educated in his palace. And so they would learn the language and the culture and the religion of the Babylonians. And they would serve as an envoy between, between the castle and in the case of Daniel and his people, the, the, the people of Judah who were, who were captured. It's generally noted that in the time of their Babylonian capture, the Jews, that, that, as a matter of fact, it was during that capture where the term Jew actually came into use. A Jew strictly refers to those of the tribe of Judah. And uh, the Jews were allowed to have their own big section of land. And because this is what they did the best in their own homeland, they became agricultural and pastoral people. Namely, they would raise animals uh, and take care of animals. And then they would, of course, take care, grow and take care of crops as well. This is generally what they did, and this, uh, this made them happy. Being, being in their own culture with their own language and their own education and so forth, and having some sort of uh, qualified, I'll call it qualified freedom, they could move about and do things and exchange with one another within their own group but of course, they couldn't speak against you know the king, and they couldn't speak against Babylon and all that. So they 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 pretty much would form villages, and then they would buy and sell with one another, uh, and and as as is the case of those of Judah, they were very adept in business, and so they actually began to trade with other ethnic groups outside their own. And Nebuchadnezzar permitted it. And so, so they actually built a pretty good lifestyle there in Babylon, built their own houses and so forth in the place that he gave them. And you'll notice that uh, they had settled beside what's called the River Kabar, which is actually an elaborate irrigation canal that was, that was dug out of the Euphrates River. So... Uh, this is, this is, they had plenty of water to water crops and water their animals uh, because of this canal that they lived on. Um, and, and they became quite prosperous while they were in Babylon. But what we're concentrating on is the message of Ezekiel. Here's, here's generally the, um, the way that Ezekiel, his prophecy develops, the book of Ezekiel develops. I'll use a, let me use a, a modern analogy. Today, we have a lot of people in church, across churches, I'm not referencing any particular church, but across the so-called church, we have a lot of people who just think of themselves as, as, as good Christians, you know. However, they have, they have based their salvation on things other than Christ, and suppose then the rapture of the church comes and all these people are left behind and they're thinking, hey, why has this happened to me? They think they were good people, but they actually were not good people at all. This is sort of what happened to the Jews when they were deported in more than one deportation. It took a while and it was an organized effort to get them away, uh, get them out of Babylon and away where they could 
serve uh, Babylon better and the king and his kingdom there in the vicinity of the city of Babylon. People, if you read especially Jeremiah and then of course Ezekiel, people in the southern kingdom of Judah became filled with sin and they became very cavalier about their worship of, of Yahweh in the temple. It was just kind of a thing, oh, today's that day. Let me go do my thing. And you know, it didn't mean anything to them. The worship didn't mean anything to them. But they held on to this thing that, you know, Yahweh was the Israelite God and he wasn't going to let anything happen to them. So now Nebuchadnezzar moves in with what at that time was the greatest army in the world. And he slaughters, Jeremiah tells us about how he slaughters people everywhere. He sets everything on fire, goes in and even, even tears down the temple, goes into the Holy of Holies. And people in the Jews in and around there, just they were just aghast that Yahweh would allow somebody to go in there where he was and, and steal all of the gold implements and so forth. But it's in the book of Ezekiel that we find that because of the sinfulness of the people, the presence of Yahweh had long since left the temple. So he wasn't even there in, in the sense that they understood his presence back in those days. He had, he had left the temple. He wasn't there. Uh, so they, they, couldn't, they couldn't offend Yahweh in the sense that they had invaded the temple because the temple became meaningless. It's even written of how the priests were worshiping false gods. You know this, and I've said this many times, but the, the worship of false gods, idolatry, in, in those days centered upon um, fertility, a worship of fertility, which carried with it all kind of... Uh, aberrant sexual behavior and this was very sensual and it was very appealing to the baser nation nature of, of people even to the point that uh, that people in Judah even though they had the presence of the temple and the son of David on the throne they, be, they, they built these altars on their rooftops and out in their yards and they, they you'd, what you'd do is you'd have a party Somebody would see that you had built an, uh, 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 an image or had a, a grove or whatever. Others would get of the same persuasion would say, man, we need to get together and, and have a big party. And of course, it was, a, it, was a, it was an orgy is what it would turn out to be. This was how they lived. Uh, it was awful. The, the lifestyle of the people was just terrible, okay? Now these people claimed to be religious. So here they are, they find themselves in slavery, having understood that the temple, the very temple itself was, was robbed and torn down and, and uh, it, was, it was defaced and demeaned. And so these people over here that have been taken off into captivity they have this big question mark on their faces, you know. Well, how has this happened to us? This is not supposed to happen to us. We're the people of God. Well, Ezekiel spends a great deal of his time prophesying and preaching to the people about the sinful condition of the nation 
and why God came against the nation or allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come against the nation. One of the things that's mentioned is how the very priesthood in the tunnels beneath the temple had carved images of false gods and goddesses in the tunnels of the temple and would go up there and they would do their thing as a priest before Yahweh and whatever the, whatever the day or ritual required. And then when they finished that, they would go right down into the tunnels and have their, have their party. They'd worship the other god, some false god. And Ezekiel is, in his prophecy, on several chapters over in, in his prophecy, he talks about how Yahweh carried him in the spirit and showed him these awful things. And so he comes back and he preaches to the people. And uh, part of his prophecy is to make these people understand how terribly sinful uh, they had been. Uh, some interesting things to note. The name by which Yahweh addressed the prophet, and this is seen 93 times in Ezekiel, is consistently Ben-Adam, or son of man. He never used Ezekiel's personal name, and the title Ben-Adam appears only in Ezekiel and in Daniel, in chapter 8 of Daniel. The title highlights the humanity of Ezekiel and his essential difference from God in uh, that, that fact applicable to uh, Ezekiel. Additionally, Ezekiel usually referred to Yahweh as Adonai Yahweh, which is the Lord Yahweh. He does that 217 times. And of course, this title emphasizes Yahweh's authority as his people's master, Adon or Adonai, Lord, Adonai. And then Yahweh is his personal name to emphasize the fact that he is the personal God upon whom Ezekiel called. We have a little Christology in uh, Ezekiel. Messiah pictured as a tender sprig that would be planted in, on a high and lofty mountain. It's in chapter 17. It's similar to the picture that we have of him in, as the branch in Isaiah 11 and in Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33 and again in Zechariah chapters 3 and 6. Ezekiel also speaks of Messiah as the king who has the right to rule and who will minister as the true shepherd. Since it's over a period of years that Ezekiel prophesied, the book of Ezekiel is the collection of his prophecies. Interestingly, and obviously he kept them this way himself, his, pro his book of prophecy here is practically and consistently in chronological order. So with that in mind, chapters 1 through 24 were written before the fall of Jerusalem to remind his fellow captives that God's judgment on the city and on the temple was surely coming. Now let me skip over to chapters 33 and 48. These contain prophecies that were still future uh, and referenced the restoration of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Uh, that is the latter part. Now we're in, we're going to be in chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine, which uh, which speaks which speaks at the very close of the age of man and the time of Israel, just before the establishment of uh, well, just before the tribulation and then the establishment of the millennial kingdom. 
That's kind of hard to see right there, but you have it on your paper. Uh, generally speaking, Ezekiel dated his oracles by year, month, and day of the month. And so there you have the 14 oracles and uh, where they're found in Ezekiel and the date that he gave and the date that would be our modern era uh, that's given. Uh, and all of, those, all of those dates in the modern era should read B.C., okay? Now, Ezekiel reminded the exiles of their covenant unfaithfulness and of the unfaithfulness and of the faithfulness and holiness and glory of Yahweh. So Yahweh would judge them, Yahweh would cleanse them, and ultimately he would bless his people. Uh, and they would come to, by, by how Yahweh dealt with them, they would come to appreciate his uniqueness, his greatness, and of course, love him and serve him. So the purpose of the exile was to turn God's people away from their sins and back to, back to their sovereign Lord, their creator, their God. And the discipline they experienced was an evidence of the love of God. When it was over, they would have a glorious future and a righteous ruler would eventually lead them back to a, a radically renovated land where they would enjoy peace and prosperity and renewed worship. Now, let me speak of the difference again between how Assyria treated her captives and how Babylon treated theirs. You may recall in the book of Isaiah that the mighty army of, of uh, Ezekiel had, in, had actually invaded the outskirts of Judah and had come and had come right right to the gates of the city wall of Jerusalem. And then the, the envoy of the king came in and he made all these blasphemous and smart aleck remarks. You know, he said he was, he was rude to Hezekiah the king. And he said something like this, you know, we have walked over every land everywhere and they all thought that their God was going to deliver them, but look what happened to them. They're our slaves, and now you're telling us that your God is going to deliver you, and all we can do is tell you to look at the other nations. And we're going to come in, and we're going to humiliate you and your God just like we did them. So get ready for this, and you've, you've got so much time. Well, anyway, he went back out, and Hezekiah prayed this, this really long prayer. Uh, and God sent an angel. What was it? 185,000 Assyrian troops were put to death. And because, because of the intervening hand of Yahweh, now th this, is this is important because of what we're going to say later about 38 and 39, chapter, chapters 38 and 39. The intervening hand of Yahweh saved the southern kingdom of Judah, and saved the son of David who was on the throne. Now, Ezekiel mentions of how God himself said, I have, I have taken the crown off that guy who, who was one of the sons of David, but he was evil, and he was very weak when, when Jerusalem was defeated. And he said, there won't be a king to wear that throne again until my appointed king is set forth, of course, his Messiah. Now, with that in mind, we would have never had, 
You see, God had made this promise. You can start back with the seed of woman. You can go from there to the covenant that was made uh, with regard, or the, 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 the implied covenant, with I would say, with, with Seth. But then go from there, and the Sethites were a separated genealogy, and you get down to Noah, and God established a covenant with Noah. And now Noah is a progenitor of Abram, uh, he was a, Noah's descendants became known as the Hebrews, descendants of Heber. Noah, I mean, uh, sorry, Abram was called a Hebrew because it would be his grandson who would be Israel. So there weren't any Israelites. There certainly weren't any Jews. There wasn't a tribe of Judah. So Abram, Abram who became Abraham, became known as, uh, he, he was called a Hebrew. But God's promise is made to Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob that his Christ will come from their stock. Then on his deathbed in Genesis 49, uh, Israel, Jacob, Israel, identifies which of his 12 sons is the one who carries the promise of the seed after his death, after Jacob's death. And it was Judah. So now Judah becomes the one who carries the promise of the Christ. We go on from there, and then that's transferred to David, and the seed of David would sit on the throne and, and so forth. This goes all the way through. Now we, we come to the end. When we get to this exile and, and, and we get to this part, uh, Daniel and Ezekiel, we're getting really to, the, to practically the end of, of the history of the Old Testament people. Most likely the main reason that God intervened and spared Jerusalem because Assyria was poised and was well able to just take Jerusalem down, slaughter them, and kill the son of David. Now if he had done that, then the promise that Yahweh had made to bring his Christ into the world would have been undone. Well, God wouldn't permit that to happen. So you'll study, you'll study in the Bible that the heart of the king is in the hand of God. Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize that he was actually a servant of God. The time came when God made him realize that he was just God's servant. But during that time, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, his father before him, they could not have known that when they developed the policy, hey, I think, we'd, I think these people would deal better with us if we just let them stay in their own ethnicity and their own culture and just keep them to themselves and let them, re let them retain their, their, the, the purity of their ethnicity uh, and I think they'll be easier to handle and they'll work for us harder. When they developed that policy, they had no idea that this was actually the tool of Yahweh to keep the tribe of Judah and the Jews intact so that indeed, on down the road, the Christ of God would emerge from, uh, from the tribe of Judah and, of course, the son of David, uh, who, who, would have been, who would have been living at that time in Jerusalem when he was captured. So this is an important thing to see and to take note of when we study uh, Ezekiel. 
how God is looking after his people and at the center of all of it is his Christ. The glory of God is a major theme that runs throughout the book. As a matter of fact, it's really the major theme of the Bible. Uh, the glory of God is what first really drew him to the answer of his call. And uh, that glory is also seen. Some of the things that we're seeing in our study in the Revelation are the things that exactly what Ezekiel described, uh, and he describes them in his book, uh, in his prophecy, it starts out in chapter one, and just to give a, just to give a sort of a summary overview here, uh, Ezekiel sees what he thinks is a storm cloud coming from the north. It looks like lightning and whatever. But then he begins to approach him. He was he was by himself on the river Kebar. He probably was pondering, how can these things happen to your people? Probably was praying. You know, how is it? How is it that your temple was so shamed and torn down and your people have been so humiliated? Uh, how is it that these things can happen? Well, God's going to explain all that through Ezekiel to the people uh, in the course of his prophecy. And so when this what appeared to be a storm cloud gets closer, Ezekiel recognizes that it is, it is this a magnificent, majestic chariot which serves as the mobile throne of the Son of God. Seated atop is the Son of God. Bearing it up are the four cherubim, these mighty creatures, the cherubim. And uh, of course, he, you know, he, he does the thing, he falls like a dead man, all this kind of stuff. The Lord... The Lord picks him up and, and uh, tells him what he wants him to do. So his call came in the midst of the presence of the very glory of God uh, there when they were in captivity. The glory of God, as it says here, is, is who he is. Uh, and everything, everything fr finally at the end of all things in the age in which we live, the purpose, and we'll see this, the purpose of all things that have happened, I mean everything, the purpose of all things we will come to realize are and have been and will always be to the glory of God. Now, without an appreciation of God's glory, the Israelites could not understand how and why God was dealing with them. Fifteen times God said, this is in Ezekiel, that he acted to keep his name glorious. More than 60 times, Yahweh said he acted so that the people would know that he was Yahweh. Now, if you look there in those parentheses, you'll see chapter 39 and verse 7. That's going to be one of the things that we're going to study. What Yahweh does in the war that is, that is yet to come that will have an impact on the whole world and in my view will introduce the tribulation and probably would be in very close proximity to the rapture of the church. This is my view. That, that tremendous event happens at that point in time to an unbelieving Israel 
to whom God says, I didn't do this for you. I did it for my glory. All right, we'll study about more about that um, as we get to it. So here's the outline of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's calling in his commission, chapters 1 through 3. The oracles of judgment on Judah and Jerusalem for their sin, that's chapters 4 through 24. The oracles against foreign nations, chapters 25 through 32. And then the future blessings for Israel, chapters 33 through 48. Again, we're looking at chapters 38 and 39, but if you go back one chapter, you have that uh, gathering of the bones, you know, the valley of dry bones. And Yahweh says to Ezekiel, prophesy. He says, what do you see? I, say, I see a bunch of dry bones. They're, they're very dry. These have people been dead a long time. Prophesy to these bones. And when he does, the bones begin to reassemble. First as skeletons, and then muscle tissue goes on them, and then skin goes over them, but they're still dead until God infuses his spirit into their lives. So the purpose of God is to bring Israel to, back to spiritual life. And one of the things that he uses, or actually probably the main thing, other than the tribulation itself, but to introduce the tribulation, is, his, is how he deals with Israel in what I call Ezekiel's War. Some people call it World War III. Now let's look at it this way. 1 through 24, prophecies about Jerusalem's destruction. 25 through 32, prophecies against the seven neighboring people. And then here's a breakdown of chapters 33 through 48. The prophet Ezekiel is commissioned to be a watchman. So, so he, has a, he has a very big responsibility. Chapter 34, Israel's shepherds and the true shepherd and the contrast between them. Chapter 35, judgment over Edom. Chapter 36, Israel's return and blessing. Chapter 37, the resurrection and reunion of Israel. That's the valley of the dry bones. Here are the two chapters we're going to study because everything through 37 now has already happened. Israel is back in the land and coming back by droves every day. But they have not been given spiritual life yet. Okay, they're still spiritually dead. They don't accept Christ as their Messiah. So the two things we're going to look at, oops, the two things that we're going to look at is, uh, is chapters, let's see, i got to go back one, I think. Yeah. Uh, is chapters 38 and 39, which is the attack uh, from Gog on Israel, Gog and the Confederates of Gog. They're more than one nation. And then the destruction of Gog. Now, interestingly, I told you it pretty much goes in chronological order. After that war, then the prophecy of Ezekiel goes right to the design and building of the temple that's in the millennium where the Lord himself uh, will sit and rule. Uh, so from chapters, chapter 40 and on, what is described is the millennial reign of Christ. So we know that when this war takes place, it takes place on the precipice of the tribulation which gives way to the millennial kingdom of, uh, of the Lord. Um, 
I think, let me see, I think I'm going to stop with where I just came. Let me look here. Christ has seen. Mine's a little, I, I, I had to, I had to, I had to, is that where I am right there? That's the next one on this. Okay, let me go, let me go about those, net, down to the speculation, okay. This, this, and this. Right, okay. They're in order here. I had them in order, but I, I didn't mark them. Uh, this is chapter one, verse one. Now, it came to pass in the 30th year, the fourth month on the fifth day of the month, very specific, I was in the midst of the exiles by the river Kabar, the hev- in the midst of the exile. The heavens opened up. I saw visions of Elohim. So you study something like this. Remember four principles of what we call historical grammatical hermeneutics. That's kind of a seminary thing. But this is to take the word literally and to apply it. When studying and trying to interpret visionary or prophetic literature, so you try to understand the major idea. Don't dwell on details, but get the overall picture. Follow the divine interpretations normally that accompany the visions. Uh, then use the same approach with symbols and imagery and figures that are uh, that are given. And then uh, number four. The general prophetic message among the prophets is essentially the same. But you have to be very aware of the parallel passages and how it leads to what we call the harmony of Scripture. So he describes all of this. Uh, I saw, behold, a tempest coming from the north, a huge cloud, flaming fire, uh, with brightness all around it from its midst. It was like the color of kashmal, from the midst of the fire and from the midst of lightness. Of four living beings, this is their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Now those are the cherubim, okay? Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. So what does he see? Ezekiel sees the living beings, the wheels that are in motion. I'm not reading all of it, but I'm referring it to you. Chapters four, uh, verses 4 through 14. The wheels that are in motion, 15 through 21. And a great expanse, 22 through 28. He saw within the opened heavens a great cloud that was blowing toward him, a north wind with horrific lightning flashing that came from it almost constantly. Within the cloud, he saw four figures resembling living beings, and they go also to those they're called beasts, I think, in the Revelation chapter 4. They had human form, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Uh now I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop there. Here's here's the whole thing because I don't think y'all have these. Do y'all have those? No, we don't have All right. I didn't think you had those, uh, and I wasn't going to get that detailed. But I did want to go. Uh, let me get over here to. Uh, I'm actually going to have to. I've done this before as a. Uh, as a study of, of Ezekiel itself, which takes a lot longer than what we're going to be looking at it. So let me go to this one. Chapters, chapters 25 through 32 are oracles against foreign nations that surround Israel. The destruction of Jerusalem caused Judah's hateful neighbors to rejoice when she fell. God didn't like that. So through Ezekiel, he announced that they shouldn't gloat because he would judge them for their attitude 
and for their treatment of his people. Whoops. I've got a, this is a sensitive thing here. All nations answer for their sins. That's very clear in the Bible, not just Israel and not just those who are in this part against Israel. Significantly note that Ezekiel mentions seven nations, as did Jeremiah and Amos. The Jews regarded seven of anything as a complete number. Uh, so these, would have, these seven would have signified to the Jews that God would judge all such pagan nations, not just these seven. And interestingly, Ezekiel did not record an oracle against Babylon. So here are the oracles. Do you have this one? Okay, I guess I could look. Here are the oracles that are listed in, uh, in the, and the chapters in which they're listed. And you'll see not only Ezekiel, but uh, other prophets as well uh, list them. Okay, now I need to go to one other thing here, and it's this one right It's, uh, I think it's this one right here. Is that the next one you have? All right. A number of commentators believe that Ezekiel refers to the Esdraelon Valley, east of the Mediterranean, the only major east-west valley in uh, Israel. A major highway that connects Egypt and Mesopotamia, also known as the Plain of Megiddo, uh, and the Apostle John identified this valley as the location of the, valley, uh, of the Battle of Armageddon. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means uh, as we get into it. Now, tomorrow we will specifically turn our attention to Ezekiel 38 and 39. What I want you to get out of this tonight is this, that it, interestingly, Ezekiel covers... The entire um, history, the, the entire story of the southern kingdom of Judah, starting with when he was alive, starting with his time, starting with when he was called to be a prophet, starts with his deportation as an exile. It starts where he is in time, but then it sweeps through time all the way to the time of the millennial kingdom, which is the time that sees the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to Israel. So Ezekiel handles it. He just, he just records it and keeps it like it came to him, so it would, have been, it would have been chronological, which is a little bit unusual for, for when, you read a, when you read a prophet uh, in the Old Testament. So we know, for example, we get to chapters 38 and 39, we know that everything before chapter 38 has already happened. So we can study it for, for our benefit, and we can learn a, lot, learn a lot of things, of course, about God. But if we want to know where we are and how it applies today, we start with chapters 38 and 39. 38 and 39 will apply to us but the millennial temple and those things are for Israel who enters into the millennial kingdom in their physical bodies 
You understand that? So that's not really applicable to us. We're either going to be raptured and glorified in the rapture or we're going to die and be resurrected in a glorified body, one or the other. But we don't identify and we belong to the rapture and resurrection of the church, not to the resurrection of Old Testament Israel and, and the tribulation saints. So this chapters 38 and 39 can really speak to us because we're going to see in the language that it speaks to the whole world. And in that event, the whole world, at least for that moment in time, is going to acknowledge the existence of the true and living God. Okay, we'll stop there and uh, pick it up there, God willing, tomorrow. Okay, so let's pray. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, we marvel at your word. We thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of studying it. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will help us in understanding it and will apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.